You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What if I told you there once lived an enslaved black woman in 18th century Massachusetts who recruited a legal team, sued for her freedom, and won? Well, that will be the truth. I'm Andre, and this is the story of Elizabeth Freeman, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. In some of the podcast episodes, we have spent a substantial amount of time discussing stories around courageous black people during the Civil War, like Mary Bowser and Robert Smalls. We have talked about black folk alive and fighting during Jim Crow in the early 20th century, like Henry Johnson and Josephine Baker and even folks who cemented their legacy during the civil rights movement, like the Honorable Chairman Fred Hampton. But one time period that we haven't tackled is the 18th century, the 1700s. Who was Elizabeth Freeman? Well, for starters, we don't really know. Piecing together this particular episode was really difficult because there just isn't much source material on her. And that has more to do with the fact that she was a black enslaved woman in the 18th century than it being the actual 18th century. Being that she was an enslaved woman, piecing together her life meant we had to piece together the lives of the white people around her because these folks were 100% allowed to own land, be publicly married, vote, among other things. And these are things that leave behind records. Elizabeth's early life was a true mystery. Your guess is really as good as mine. We can piece together a few things through historical accounts, documents, records, but there isn't much. All we know is that she was born between 1742 and 1744 in Claverack, New York, which was a small township hamlet which ran from the Hudson River inland to the Massachusetts line. We also know she was born into slavery. Before 1776, most enslaved people in the Hudson River Valley came from Africa via Caribbean islands such as Cuba or Barbados, or from South Carolina. It is speculated that she was born to parents who were born in Africa, which parts are unknown. The slave master she was born into servitude under was a white man named Peter Hogboom. At an early age, Elizabeth was purchased, along with her sister, to be under the servitude of Colonel John Ashley of Sheffield, Massachusetts. We do know that throughout her life, she was referred to as Mum or Mum Bet because of the maternal-like role she played to the children she helped raise, the children that typically belonged to her masters. And Bet was actually a common name given to enslaved black women who served in a house role. One of the most enlightening things about this story is that it serves as a reminder uh, and education, really, to what slavery in colonial northeastern America was like. Typically, we think of the harshness of slavery mostly residing in the South, but it is just because most of the slavery that we really talk about and study, at least in my circles in the education that I received, is centered around the Civil War. And by that time, slavery in Connecticut, Massachusetts and New York had long been abolished. If you take public opinion, folks are often shocked that there was ever slavery in Massachusetts in the first place. It's ironic because Massachusetts is where the Puritans came to escape religious persecution, but there was slavery there? 
But Massachusetts was actually among the first American colonies to own slaves and did so for about 150 years. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Not so fun fact. It is estimated that enslaved black people produced an estimated 222,505,049 hours of labor between 1619 and 1865. Slavery in these early day colonies was really used as a blueprint of sorts for how it would be enacted in the rest of the colonies and country as the practice would spread over the years. In these colonies, there were master-slave relationships where the slaves were meant to be docile and obedient. The legislature enacted laws in the 1600s and 1700s that were meant to keep the enslaved in their place because the enslavers were always afraid of black people getting freedom, education, and obtaining leadership to the point where the balance of power could be changed. For instance, in 1717, legislature passed a law that said that a slave owner would have to post a $200 bond to ensure that a slave they freed would not become in charge of a city or town. This gave slave owners a lot of pause when it came to the thought of even freeing an enslaved person in the first place. Elizabeth spent the majority of her three decades enslaved under the ownership of the Colonel John Ashley. He was perhaps the most respected and revered individual in the town of Sheffield, Massachusetts. He was born around 1709 and got his title as Colonel for his role in the French and Native American War. His family got their wealth and prominence by being granted free land, which was already occupied by a native tribe called the Mohicans. A lot of this land is what ended up being several towns that make up Berkshire County, Massachusetts, where this story takes place. Ashley went on to be a lawyer and served on the Berkshire County Court of Common Pleas. Elizabeth was most likely the leader of the enslaved folk who ran the Ashley household. They were responsible for cleaning, cooking, and watching after the Ashley children. Now, Elizabeth suing for her freedom is what a lot of people refer to as a suit for freedom. It came in May of 1781, just months before the British surrender at Yorktown in the Revolutionary War. Interestingly enough, she was not the first enslaved person to sue for her freedom. You ever heard of the story of Jenny Slew? She was a black woman born in 1719 as the child of an enslaved black man and a free white woman. Jenny lived as a free woman until she was kidnapped in 1762 by a white man named John Whipple and later went on to sue. The story is really wild when you think about it. This free woman was over 40 years old, kidnapped and enslaved out of nowhere. Her complaint in court stated that on January 29, 1762, John Whipple, with force and arms, took her, held her, and kept her in servitude as a slave in his service and thus restrained her of her lawful liberty and did other injuries. 
Although it is frequently written that Jenny Slew was kidnapped, force in arms is a legal phrase universally inserted in a writ of trespass. After four long years, the court ordered John Whipple to free Jenny Slew, but after many, many technicalities and upholding of different trials. And she eventually got her freedom basically because her mother was a free white woman. And it was common knowledge to a lot of people that uh, whoever your mother is when you're born, her freedom or lack thereof is what will transfer to you. Now back to Elizabeth. Where did she get the idea to sue for her freedom? What was the motivation that pushed her to this point? Well, there were a few things. In early January 1773, John Ashley became moderator of a committee of 11 local citizens, including an attorney named Theodore Sedgwick. We'll get to him in a second. Theodore Sedgwick wrote a document known as the Sheffield Declaration. This document, approved by the committee on January 12, 1773, expressed anger at how Great Britain was treating her subjects in the colony of Massachusetts and resolved that mankind in a state of nature are equal, free, and independent of each other and have a right to the undisturbed employment of their lives, their liberty, and property. The Sheffield Declaration requested its local representatives to the general court in Boston to consider the declaration and to use every constitutional means in his power that the grievances complained of may be redressed. That's a mouthful and it's fancy for, hey, Britain, we don't like how you're treating us. We deserve our due freedom, our due liberties, our due property ironic right go back and listen to that long quote of their grievances and it becomes more ironic each and every time these white men were so upset with england because they thought their rights and freedoms were being consistently infringed upon while they were simultaneously holding slaves hilarious even According to later recounts from Elizabeth, part of her motivation was that she would constantly be around the house doing work and hear the conversation of these men as they held their meetings, talked about the upcoming Declaration of Independence, talked about the Revolutionary War, talked about the Sheffield grievances, the Sheffield Declaration, and the upcoming Massachusetts Constitutional Convention. She would hear the passion and fervor that these men would speak with when it concerned the freedoms that they thought they were entitled to. Besides the Sheffield Declaration in 1773, the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and the impending Massachusetts New Constitution in 1780, there was a laundry list of documents being thrown around that preached about all the rights of men. In March of 1780, there was a constitutional convention in Massachusetts to produce a new state constitution. It was approved in June of 1780 and became law in October of 1780. Being enslaved in a home meant that you were always listening. Many slaves couldn't read, they couldn't write, but they could listen very well. And through careful espionage and tact, Elizabeth was able to decipher the first article of the Constitution, which read, All men are born equal and have certain essential and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. And Elizabeth said, Whoa! Whoa, this this should apply. This should apply to me. This should apply to everyone. 
But what was the thing that ultimately made Elizabeth want to sue for her freedom? Well, there was one day when in the Ashley residence, the lady of the manor, John Ashley's wife, was in the kitchen with Elizabeth's sister. We aren't entirely sure what happened, but the lady was made anger and attempted to strike Elizabeth's sister with a kitchen shovel. Elizabeth rushed to her sister's aid and was struck on the arm. She immediately fled the Ashley residence and vowed to never return. John Ashley appealed her return, but she remained on the run and immediately sought the help of the lawyer and John Ashley's friend, Theodore Sedgwick, a man that Elizabeth knew because he was often present at the meetings at the Ashley household. Theodore Sedgwick was born in Hartford, Connecticut in 1746. He was a man who amassed massive wealth and land in his lifetime and was very passionate about the United States and his thoughts and beliefs put an emphasis on the United part. He was also a very flawed individual, having owned slaves himself. Shocker. He was very hot and cold on the topic of slavery and abolition. He would go on to represent slaves for their freedom in court, join the Abolitionist Society of Philadelphia in 1792, then turn around and support the Fugitive Slave Act in 1793. He would then go on to serve on the Massachusetts Supreme Court and argue against the institution of slavery in 1810. Confusing. Many scholars believe that Sedgwick supported slavery when it was convenient for him, but he knew overall unity was the key to the fight against the British. Elizabeth appealed to Sedgwick that he should be her legal counsel in a suit for freedom. Sedgwick asked where she could even fathom such a thing, and Elizabeth claimed she got the idea from the new Bill of Rights in the state constitution. A man named Brom, who we don't know much about, was also added to the case. Brom was a black enslaved man who was also a slave of John Ashley. But Theodore Sedgwick and some of his political confidants thought it would be better and better their chances by adding a man to their case because this was unprecedented. They were presenting a case, a suit for freedom based upon legality, laws that had been written into place. And Brom was actually made the lead plaintiff. So the case reads, Brom and Betts vs. J. Ashley Esquire. The case was tried in August 1781 before the County Court of Common Pleas at Great Barrington. Sedgwick argued that the Massachusetts Constitution had outlawed slavery. The jury determined that Brom and Bett were not Ashley's property. The court set Bett and Brom free and awarded them 30 shillings for damages. The verdict for Elizabeth was a clear victory for women, for black people, and enslaved people. After the verdict was delivered, Elizabeth left the Ashley residence for good and petitioned to live and work as a free person with the Sedgwicks in their household. She lived with Theodore Sedgwick and his family until around 1808. The jury had freed Elizabeth and Brom because according to evidence and petition, slavery had never been legal in Massachusetts in the first place. We don't know really anything would happen to Brom after this case. And of course, John Ashley immediately filed an appeal of the ruling to the Supreme Court. However, the appeal was never heard. John Ashley never went through with it on the basis that he knew it would fail. And the growing attitude in the state was that slavery was unconstitutional. And he became the first person in the state to free the rest of his slaves on those grounds. John Ashley died in 1802.
Many slaves had brought freedom cases to the courts for 30 years before Elizabeth, but for the most part, they were based on brutalities, kidnappings. Elizabeth was the first to do so on the grounds of the 1780 Constitution. Afterwards, there was a slow trickle to fully eradicate slavery in Massachusetts. In 1788, the legislature passed a law banning slave trading, but balanced it with another law saying that all blacks who weren't citizens of the state had to leave the state within two months. They were really grasping for straws at this point. Slave owners were clinging but knew the inevitable outcome. Elizabeth Freeman should be a nationally treasured historical figure. Her life and what she did and how she fought should be taught about in elementary, middle, and high schools across the country. But unfortunately, it's not. Is this your first time hearing of her? Because I was not made aware of her or her life until this year. Her story is so unique because her fight for freedom came during the Revolutionary War period. We learn about that in length at every turn in school. Meanwhile, she overcame the institution of slavery almost a century before its abolishment. As a freed woman, Elizabeth lived with the Sedgwicks in a place called Stockbridge. She worked as a respected midwife, nurse, and nanny, helping raise the Sedgwick kids, Henry, Charles, Robert, and Catherine, and seeing them through the death of Theodore Sedgwick in 1813. As she aged, Elizabeth actually did well for herself. She had children and grandchildren and owned clothes, a little bit of money, and about 19 acres of land. And all of this was left to her children and grandchildren. She was a part of a network of freed black people and built relationships through the folks she met through her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Her place in Massachusetts lore was cemented for the courage she showed during her suit for freedom. Her home ownership gave her hopes for generational wealth to be passed down to her kin and that they would have something to sustain them and the generations to come after them. Her genealogy, for all we know and all that we can track, can only be traced through 1867 because all of her known family left Berkshire County and settled in New York City, Connecticut, and Liberia. We also don't know for sure whether she was ever married. Lore and differing accounts tell us she married young, had one child with him, and he died soon after in the Revolutionary War. Charles Sedgwick, Theodore's son, whom Elizabeth helped raise, made sure there was an accurate, well-drawn-up will for Elizabeth before she passed. Elizabeth Freeman died around the age of 85 in 1829. Elizabeth was a woman who refused to be a victim of her circumstances and sought to fight a fight that would not only improve her life, but also enrich the lives of others. When we talk about impactful women throughout history, we have to include her. Elizabeth spent all of her life being called many names, but when she won her freedom, she chose the name Elizabeth Freeman. She was given a grave and headstone in the Sedgwick family plot, which reads, she was born a slave and remained a slave for nearly 30 years. She could neither read nor write, yet in her own sphere, she had no superior or equal. Her tombstone stands in the innermost circle of what is known as the Sedgwick Pie. Elizabeth Freeman, known by the name Mum Bet. Long live Elizabeth Freeman. Until next time. Yo, if you like this episode, consider going down and leaving a rating and review. It goes a long way. I truly appreciate all the support, and I'll see y'all next time. Love y'all.